podcast one production. I think we all know that we live in a, a complex, interconnected, globalised world. But, but how interconnected? How complex? And what are the impacts of how connected our world is? Well, a new article from a couple of Australian scientists attempts for the first time to truly measure the environmental and social footprints of international trade. It's not the sort of stuff I would have normally expected to talk about on the podcast, but an absolutely fascinating discussion with Professor Manfred Lenzen from the University of Sydney. How are you, Manfred? I'm good, Adam. Thank you very much. Very good to hear. I'll read the first sentence of your introductory paragraph to the article. Globalisation has led to an increasing geospatial separation of production and consumption, and as a consequence, to an unprecedented displacement of environmental and social impacts through international trade. It's fair to say... There's a lot to unpack here, <laughs> but this is fascinating stuff. Talk me through that example I gave you of the car in the United States and why that's emblematic of what you're really getting to here, isn't it? Yes, Adam, that's that's true. And uh, again, I think the essence of, of what we found here is that um, the supply chain that you mentioned uh, using a car or, for example, the um, the example of, of mining is not just uh, an, an isolated one. What we've found here is, is that this um, phenomenon of international trade displacing the impacts from consumption is a really systemic one. And it's not just true for a car. It's true for all sorts of goods. And it's true for all sorts of environmental and social indicators for carbon emissions, for resources such as water and land. And also for social impacts like inequality or uh, problematic labour. The, the the field is called consumption-based accounting or footprinting. And I, I like the word footprinting because it gives you that idea of that car that exists in the US now. There are certain footprints all around the world that have been made to lead to that final product. Yes, that's true. I mean, the, the people who who exert the footprint, that's us, that's us consumers. And once we've stamped our foot down, then the impacts of this, uh, this, this action, this, this purchasing actions, they ripple all across the world economy and they leave impacts just about everywhere. Now, it makes sense when you say that, and I'm sure people for a long time have known in theory that's the case. But what's interesting about your research, Manfred, is I get the impression you've only comparatively recently put together the tools in the toolbox to in any way measure accurately something as complex as this. Am, am I right? Is it a, is it, It's a comparatively new field, even though in theory we've, we've understood it out there for a while? That's exactly right, Adam. Now, people have known for a while in the area of greenhouse gas emissions um, that international trade had something to do uh, with with what we call carbon leakage or uh, outsourcing of emissions. That was known for quite a while. And in fact, in 2009, uh, China's chief uh, negotiator for, for climate change made the comment that China uh, was uh, emitting a lot of greenhouse gases, but a significant part of those emissions uh, occurred 
because China was producing goods that were destined for export and that people from other countries benefited from the consumption of these goods and that therefore China should not be held responsible for those emissions. Now, if, if China's chief negotiator says this, then it's a significant statement. And what we, we find here and what's doc documented in this new synthesis that the same process is is happening for uh, for water use. We outsource water uh, across the globe, uh, and also uh, we outsource employment across the world. That th these these um, uh, this synthesis of of uh, footprinting or consumption based accounting, um, including new indicators. That's that's probably the most uh, significant novelty of, of what has emerged from this research. Yeah, explain that to me a little bit more. What, do you, what, do you, what what can you do now? What can you measure now that a decade, okay. 20 years ago, people couldn't? What, what, what are these new skills that are coming together? So t 10 years ago, people measured... Uh, embodied carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. That was that was fairly common, um, but but back then there wasn't such a thing as what is now called virtual water or embodied water, and so people have uh, started compiling um, accounts or inventories that existed on greenhouse gas emissions now also for water, and for uh, land, and for employment and for uh, child labor, for inequality, um, and for nitrogen emissions, for example, for biodiversity. The uh, problem that, that people had, let's say 10 years ago, was that the data, the raw data that were out there, they were just a dog's breakfast. They were completely mm -hmm. misaligned. They came from different sources. You couldn't put them together. Surely, they were aligned for individual countries, but not for the whole world. So people could not trace international trade. Uh, with these physical indicators, and um, our, our ability to to read the planet spatially has massively improved, hasn't it? So the ability yes. to look at a country and work out what percentage of its area is forest, what what percentage is covered by fresh water, we are massively more able to do that now than we were a decade ago. And that's also an important part of trying to measure the, the footprint and the inputs in something like this, isn't it? That's that's correct. And certainly GIS modelling has a lot to do with this advancement. G GIS. GIS modelling, which is? Uh, global uh, Geographic Information Systems. Uh, let's say uh, you can have land use information, for example, at, at Australia at the, at the um, statistical local area scale um, which is uh, that, that's the geographical um, classification that the Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, issues. Now they they exist at at different granularities, um, but then for a country that's that's as large as Australia and where we have different production regimes across uh, the the latitudes, uh, you know, thinking from from tropical. Uh, tropical agriculture to uh, to um, rainfed irrigation down in Victoria, we need to have spatially explicit information, and uh, these now come more and more often from geographical information systems, and they provide really detailed pictures of what's going on in a large country. Of course, if you have a country like Luxembourg, of course, then it's not important mm -hmm. to be spatially explicit, but certainly for Indonesia, the United States, Australia, China, it is important, and we see now that for those countries, subnational databases emerge and that's a very exciting development. So when we can measure these things down to a, a, a more granular as in more detailed, more close-up split of what different things are happening in different parts of the land, understand the area involved, etc., 
you're starting to get cleaner, more accurate data, that that dog's breakfast is getting tidied up a little bit? Yes, that's true. And also we get much more interesting findings. I remember reading an article a while ago that looked at the outsourcing of carbon dioxide within China. And what we can see in the world, like the rich countries outsourcing their dirty production into the poor areas of the world, that's happening within China. That we see the sort of the southeast and wealthy parts of China consuming, you know, hell for leather and uh, outsourcing uh, the emissions-intensive production into more rural areas within China. And collaboration's a point that's touched on in this paper. What we're, who's collaborating? We're collaborating more now towards this common end than we were a while ago? Yes. Uh, Adam, you can imagine that putting together these complex databases and this dog's breakfast mm. is a task that you that, well, that has previously happened within one organisation, within one group at a university, and uh, quickly, quickly we could see that this task is simply overwhelming as more and more data emerge. Um, and recognizing that this cannot be done by just one team. At the University of Sydney, we um, recently applied for funding to to um, to create a virtual laboratory. Now, this is a cloud-based computing platform and that lets researchers all over Australia and worldwide actually log on, post their data and harmonize their data and participate in this kind of research. And this is working really well and it enables research um, efficiency and um, um, the and, and new innovative work streams that, that that were not existing a while ago. Here's a fascinating finding in the paper that when it comes to global health impacts and deaths around the world from particulate matter, fine particulate matter, unhealthy air with very because of very small particles, anything up to one quarter, of all the impact around the world from that that happens, all the deaths and illnesses around the world from particulate matter, about one quarter of all of it is due to trade, so the creation of products that aren't being consumed in that area that we or people in the developed world are consuming. Yes, that's true. Now, put two two, um, stories or two images together. You've probably seen... Uh, uh, photos from taken in, in Beijing where people wear these uh, face masks mm. and, and you see the background is all foggy and, mm. and, and smoky. Um, and then remember that China is the fact, basically the factory of the world economy and um, we buy goods from, from China. Now, they're, they're made under circumstances um, where they lead to local air pollution and, and to smog and then to respiratory diseases and, um, and the uh, associated health impacts. Because it's tempting to look at that that, that, that image, and, and you're talking just the soot, the, you know, the fog of soot. It's tempting to look at that and go, gee, the Chinese don't do things very clean, do they? Gee, they, they, they run a very dirty show over there, don't they? But a quarter of that stuff is being, uh, is what involved in satisfying our demand for goods. That's right. We demand this stuff and they just produce it for us. And we've basically uh, displaced that uh, dirty production uh, in, into China. Um, uh, my, my colleague, uh, Professor uh, Thomas uh, Wiedmann from UNSW, uh, he was commissioned a while ago by, by DEFRA, UK's uh, Environment uh, Office, asking uh, to quantify the UK's carbon footprint. And because I guess the, the, the minister expected uh, that we would find, as it was stated frequently, that the UK's emissions had decreased over time. However, what we found is that the UK's carbon footprint, that means counting all of the UK's imports, 
had increased. Now, initially, the minister... Just a lot of it wasn't happening in the UK anymore. Exactly. And so the minister didn't believe it asked for an uncertainty analysis, which we did. The findings were confirmed. And um, the contradiction was so stark that the minister uh, sort of felt compelled to go on BBC and explain uh, what what was happening. But there was no way around uh, uh, realising that all this dirty production had been displaced to China. In, in the area of water, of course, a crucial resource more and more with the growing world population, uh, the change in the climate, 11% of global groundwater use, 13% of global polluted water, 32% of global scarce water use. One third of all the scarce water being used in the world is being done to facilitate international trade. Look, there's a really interesting story to tell, Adam, and that is uh, look at look at the textile supply chains. Mm. Imagine you you bought a um, a cotton T-shirt, mm. and let's assume that uh, the the fabric for this T-shirt was was uh, stitched together in China, and was woven in Bangladesh, and also let's assume the the yarn was was spun somewhere in Bangladesh or India. Now, the, then it's very likely that that cotton was grown in Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan is an arid country. Uzbekistan? Yes, Uzbekistan. I would not have guessed that. Yeah, there's a, Uzbekistan produces a lot of cotton, and all this cotton is irrigated, and the water to irrigate this cotton comes from the Aral Sea. And, uh, and cotton, for people who don't know, is very water-intensive, isn't it? The creation of cotton really sucks up water. Yes, it's very water-intensive, and you probably have seen images of ships and boats stranded in the sand miles and miles away from the shoreline of the Aral Sea. And that's because this, this huge lake is being depleted. It's shrinking, it's disappearing. And that's because of, of irrigation water taken out of this lake largely for cotton, which is used for textiles. To create the cotton that then goes to India or Bangladesh to be woven, to make the thread that goes to China, to make the T-shirt that I'm wearing out on Saturday night to look good at a party. <laughs> that's right, Adam. It's fascinating. Give it some more of these results. Global mercury emissions, raw material extractions, 18% of global labour and often labour that you, you, the stories you hear are sometimes very unsettling about the labour conditions of the people working facilitating international trade. Uh, Labour is also a very interesting story. We were surprised ourselves when we saw the results. What uh, at the extent of, of uh, the international distribution of labour, how much it was skewed towards serving our needs. Let's say uh, you earn your, your income in dollars and what you earn, let's say overall, more or less you spend on, on what you consume. So there is a balance. You earn what you spend and that's in the long run that's true for everybody. But when you look at the labour, uh, then a picture emerges as where you, of course, work for uh, the goods that you consume, but also there are up to five people elsewhere who work to provide you with, with the goods that you buy. I've, I have never thought about that. And I've that is, never thought about that till now. So if I'm in my house and I'm going, I've worked hard, that's why I've got that really good TV. I've worked hard, that's why I wear those running shoes. I've worked hard, that's why I've got that computer. I've never stopped to think... Yeah, Adam, a lot of other people have worked really hard, a lot harder than you for you to have those shoes and that computer. 
five five or six to one. Up up to five or six to one. And that is because the wages in these other countries that supply our inputs and that we get shipped to our shores via international trade, their wages are much lower. Mm. And that is why there's so much labor embodied in what in what we buy. But this labor is exclusively happening overseas in in, in countries with low wages. Now, go to the flip side of that, uh, of this finding, and then you look at um, who do people in developing countries work for? Only, let's say, 30% of their time, they work for things that they consume themselves. The rest of the time, they'll work for export goods. Mm-hmm. The complete reverse of the situation where I've effectively got an army of people working for me to create the stuff I need to get through the day. That's right. So in a way, you could say there's a world of masters and servants out there. You're listening to The Big Questions with me, Adam Spencer. More about the environmental and social footprints of international trade with Professor Manfred Lenzen, up soon. How has this research been received so far? What's some of the feedback you've been getting? Some of the feedback we've been getting is that people cannot understand how we can unravel billions and billions and billions of supply chains within, let's say, one and a half years that it typically takes to compile and publish a paper like Mm. this. They they say, well, how far do you go? Do you go to the suppliers of our goods or the suppliers of the suppliers or the suppliers of the suppliers of suppliers? Where do you stop? Mm. And they say, well, we don't stop anywhere. We go up to infinity. I'm sure, well, that can't be because you don't have an infinite amount of time. And I say, well, it's mathematics. It's what's called a series expansion and what's called a matrix inverse. It's all mathematics and, and, and high-performance computation. That's why we can do this. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's this alliance between yourself and Thomas Weedman. Now, Thomas is from the Sustainability Assessment Program, School of Civil and Environmental Engineering. You're from the School of Physics at the University of Sydney. He's at UNSW. So while this is, uh, while this work has a great input into the social sciences and into politics and into government and into economics, it really is two sort of engineering physics nerds who are who are crunching the numbers here. That's correct. I mean, Tommy is in the School of Engineering, as you said, and he's, he's very familiar in the, in the physical world. He knows about water use and land use and, and these other indicators. And at the School of Physics, we're good at crunching numbers. So our, our high-performance computation support is excellent, and um, that, made, that made for a really interesting and innovative collaboration. You, you say that 10 years ago this work could not have been done. We didn't have the computational yeah. power. We didn't have the spatial resolution. It's not at the absolute end point yet because I can't show you a particular brand of shoes and say, okay, can I compare these Nike to these ASICs in terms of embedded label? You're not down to individual item yet. Ten years from now, will we look back at this and laugh that we thought it was groundbreaking or is this as sharp as it can get? I think uh, there is there's still progress to be made. Uh, one aspect of this is computational grunt. Mm. I remember that when we started this kind of research, we bought a 32 gigabyte RAM machine mm-hmm. for the same amount of money that 10 years later, we bought a two terabyte RAM machine. Mm-hmm. And extrapolate this into the future and you, you, you will be able to see that in another 10 years time, Yes, we will be laughing about computational power that we've uh, recruited to to get uh, these results. Um, you mentioned granularity. Um, we will certainly be able to 
to use more and more GIS-based data into our calculations. What is uncertain, though, is whether we will ever be able to deal with brands because there are issues of confidentiality. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure whether we can get around those. Let me ask you to step outside of your nerdy physics world for a second and, and into the world of people. Do you think do you think the average person cares? Do you think the average person, if they were given access to this information, would be happy to pay a few dollars more to improve the situation, to reduce the footprint? Well, um, that's uh, that's the million-dollar question. I'm glad you asked it. Because I've, I've always, when, when, when I hear that my, let's say, my $100 pair of shoes and the person who made them got $1.80 or something like that, I'm just going to... I would happily pay $105 if that person got the extra $5 and their wage was tripled. Now, people, when I raise that very simplistic thing, people go, yeah, but mate, your $5 is just going to go into the pot and some little local corrupt mayor who who bid to have the factory built there anyway is just going to line his or her pockets and it's all going to get lost in the city. So I, I, I don't think people can be bothered doing anything about it, but I think if it was made easy for people to do something about it with a small financial impost – most people would happily pay a couple of dollars more if it changed the lives of... But then does the factory just go somewhere else where people aren't getting paid that much? What are your views on that aspect of it? Well, it's, uh, I, think, I think there are, there are organisations and NGOs who make it very transparent that if you do pay extra money to, um, to buy, to purchase goods that are not associated with um, unequal wages or gender gaps or the like... Uh, then I think there are organisations that that allow you um, uh, to be to be certain that your money gets there where it's intended to uh, to get. Having said that, paying more money is is one option that you have, but it doesn't work for all the indicators. For example, if you look at your personal carbon footprint. There is no way you can pay more money to reduce this carbon footprint. Of course, you can you can try and buy goods that are less carbon intensive. But what we found in the end is the sheer scale of what people in in rich countries like Australia consume that that drives climate change, and that can't be rectified by just buying different goods or or, or looking at fair trade. That that needs a hard think about affluence. Yeah. So so really, Adam, just don't buy that many shoes rather than try and buy nicer and nicer pairs of shoes. For example, yes. But this is, of course, it's a very confronting thought and it's it's a very inconvenient question to be asked. And I guess a lot of us uh, just don't want to think about this because if we took it seriously, our lives would be fundamentally changed. Having looked at this, is is there anything simple or realistically achievable we could do that could significantly change some of these numbers? I think with this work, we've just laid the foundation for understanding what is emerging, what is happening. And now work has to be done to think how we can get this into decision making. And I think this will not be easy work because, as I said, this work confronts us with our affluent and convenient lives. At the moment, Virtually nobody talks about consumption. We talk about gadgets. We talk about efficiency. People want technology to do the job for them. However, I can show you that over the past 30 years, technological improvements that happens everywhere were completely outpaced by increasing affluence. 
You know, so it means emissions have been increasing because affluence growth has been stronger than technological progress. So this means that we cannot solve the current conundrum just by looking at technology in isolation. We need to address lifestyles. And that's a hard question. Imagine a politician saying, what about consuming less? Have you ever seen that? I haven't. <laughs> that is a tough sell, isn't it? Before you got into this particular project and this research, you're, you're from the School of Physics. What, what, what's your physics work of choice? What's your physics specialty, Manfred? Well, I was trained as a, as a nuclear physicist and I was dealing with, uh, with nuclear reactors and, and radon emissions. But then I had a lecturer in, in Germany where I did my, uh, my undergraduate studies who was already in 1989 a member of the German Enquete Commission for Climate Change. Mm-hmm. And he was very passionate. He was wagging his finger at us and said, you're responsible. You're not just here to crunch numbers and to, and to do equations. You're responsible citizens. And um, you, you, could, you could hear anything in the lecture theater. He had us in the palm of his hands. Mm. It was, it was uh, People were piling up on, uh, at the doors to listen to him. Mm. And, and he made us think. He made us think about what is our impact in the world. Then when I got to the School of Physics in in Sydney, a colleague of mine, Chris Day, and I, we were researching renewable energy technologies. And at some stage, he asked us, how much energy does it take to make a solar cell? Mm -hmm. Surely we know that once a solar cell is operating, there's no emissions Mm. with it, or it doesn't require fossil fuels to operate. But you have to build it in the first place. Yes, exactly. And is that energy to build, is that more? Is it half of it? Is it just a percent of it? We had no idea. That's how we got into this research. And, you know, having to do mathematics two years in your undergraduate study helps to get into this complex economic theory. Can I take you off on a sidebar for a second and ask, these days with your solar cells these days, are they comparatively efficient the way we make them compared to the energy payback of 20, 25 years on your roof? Um, the energy payback time is is uh, less than the lifetime of the cell, and that's you would, would, you, what you would hope for. Uh, but there are other devices, such as wind turbines, where the uh, energy payback time is incredibly short. It's a few months mm. for wind turbines. So uh, the energy embodied in a wind turbine is only a fraction of the energy that this wind turbine will deliver. I imagine it must be rewarding for you doing this sort of work, because a lot of people think of physics as locked off in the lab and, and not doing anything that has an immediate human impact, you're understanding amazing things about the cosmos and maybe working on particular devices, but knowing that you're looking at really human problems and a lot of people around the world, some of whom are in very challenging situations, is that rewarding for you, Manfred? It is rewarding because I'm emotionally and personally involved in Mm. my research Uh, because uh, in, in the end, I leave a footstep, a footprint on this earth as well. And uh, I try, I try to impart this uh, when I, when I deal with 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 our students. I I try to make them see that this is not just a remote country, Bangladesh, going underwater. Uh, this is us all being involved in this in this same story. It's a fascinating piece of research, environmental and social footprints of international travel. I'll be honest with you, man. When I started this podcast series. I never thought I'd be sitting opposite a physicist talking about the environmental and social footprints of international trade. And I certainly, if I'd thought about doing it, would never have thought it would have been as interesting a discussion as what we've just had. Thank you so much for joining us on The Big Questions, mate. Thank you for having me, Adam. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One studios. 
series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more big questions soon. Big questions.